0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market moving news.
0: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. Today, we are joined by Narayana Kojelakota, former Minneapolis Fed President and Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He's also uh, professor of economics at the University of Rochester. Uh, Narayana, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, you coming on today. It's going to be a busy day for Fed watchers today. We've got the statement at 2 p.m. Wall Street time and then Fed Chairman Powell's uh, press conference at 2.30. What do you expect to hear most notably from Chairman Powell's comments?
2: Well, I think uh, what we're waiting to hear is largely about um, what was the Fed talking about at the meeting and. You know, this is a meeting where uh, the Fed is going to be talking about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, I don't expect much change in terms of monetary policy or in the statement um, at this time, but I think that the Fed probably spent a couple of of days of very thoughtful reflection on what are their tools, how can they best use them, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, Chairman Powell will will give us a a little bit of a heads up about how how those conversations went.
1: What might be done about forward guidance, Narayana?
2: Well, um, I think, Vani, that, that I think forward guidance is um, something that the Fed used during the last recovery. I think they were by and large pleased with how it went. But I think that the, uh, the Fed tried out uh, what was called calendar-based guidance, where they talked about keeping rates low for a particular fixed period of time. I doubt we're going to see that. Uh, coming down the pike because the problem with that is you're as you get new information you have to change that guidance and changing it is uh, it turns out to be pretty challenging. So what I think the Fed is likely to aim for is um, what we, we would call instead state-based guidance where they talk about the conditions under which uh, they're likely to to raise rates. now I don't to be clear, uh, I don't think anyone expects a rate increase to be coming Certainly, any time, uh, even the next calendar year, twenty twenty one, and and probably not even in, in uh, throughout twenty twenty two. So, hmm. but I think it's impo- the reason this matters is uh, it affects the path of medium term interest rates. So, uh, um, if the Fed says it's going to keep rates low um, until, say, inflation returns to well above two percent, that feeds into something different in terms of of. Of the pattern of medium-term interest rates, and that that can help stimulate the economy. So,
0: Narayana, you're out with a, a column recently that entitled "The Fed Needs to Focus on Employment." How do you believe they should focus on employment?
2: Yeah, Paul, I think that um, uh, a lot of the of the discussion that you'll hear among Fed watchers is, uh, and, and from Fed communication as well, is that. They're talking about and thinking about communicating through the inflation rate. So the saying, as I, I just articulated, that their um, way they would view, formulate forward guidance is we're going to keep rates low uh, until inflation has returned to 2% in a sustainable way or, or maybe we allowing for an overshoot. I understand why they're doing that. Um, I think that will communicate that they're keeping rates lower for longer than maybe than, than people would expect. At the same time, Inflation is a challenging uh, marker for for households to to figure out. They might not think of their wages being able to keep up with higher inflation. And so there's a lot of evidence. The evidence on that is very mixed, I would say, in the economics literature about will higher inflation, signaling higher inflation, lead people to cut back on spending or lead them to spend more? Whereas saying you're going to be uh, focusing on employment, we're going to keep rates low until unemployment returns to, let's say, 4%. Uh, that will tell people, oh, okay, the Fed is there until the recovery is really complete. And um, and uh, low unemployment is obviously um, something that everyone associates with with positive economic news.
1: Now, Rihanna, what kind of fiscal stimulus would help to maybe have the economy avoid some of the structural unemployment that we are definitely going to see?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that um, there's, I should think there should be more of a sense that this is likely to be a long, longer-term issue. Um, you know, and I think you see some of that in the Democratic side that you, uh, some recognition along those lines. Uh, I think we should, there should be a recognition as well that the problem in the economy is not uh, people feeling flush with that uh, $600 at, um, extra benefit, and so whether well, they're staying home and not not willing to work. The problem in the economy is not enough demand. Uh, That that low demand is because of public health concerns, Um, and so the role of government, I think, in that situation is to try to stimulate demand, and the best way to do that, I think, is by uh, keeping unemployment insurance, um, extending those benefits, extending the extra benefits.
0: So that's interesting. I mean, do you get a sense that there's appetite in Washington, given what you've heard and read and folks you've spoken to, that there is that... uh, support for more stimulus here it appears this round appears to be much much more political uh, than the most recent or third round where we got uh, three trillion dollars
2: so uh, you know i was answering the should not the will
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: part of the question um what will happen you know uh, politics not my forte but i agree with you completely we see a lot of polarization here um i think there, you're gonna you're hearing more of the concerns about boy the debt is getting big uh, this is just the wrong time to have those concerns. It continues to be a time of very high unemployment and that high unemployment. I think the challenge for, for a lot of people on the, on the Republican side of the aisle, is they see that unemployment is coming from the fact that um, uh, unemployment insurance benefits are really high. And so that is encouraging people not to work. Whereas I, I think it remains clear that the problem facing the economy is that uh, there's not enough demand out there and, um, if there were more demand, there would be more hiring, and and, uh, and we'd have you know we'd have better uh, better economic conditions going forward. Uh, but that's we're, we've reverted, I think, unfortunately, to the discussions we had in Congress in, in the latter part of '09 and 2010 and 2011, where the debt, um, the overhang of the of the large uh, apparently large government debt, um, really forestalled a lot of needed stimulus.
1: So, Narayana, I mean, you can't stimulate demand in a pandemic if people don't want to go outside. Therefore, and I'm making a, a you know a second jump here. Should politicians be worried about, you know, spending fiscally at times like this, or, 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 or you know, is the GOP position correct that you can't, you know, bankrupt an economy?
2: So I. So the uh, as long as interest rates remain low, and as long as people expect interest rates to remain low, you're not close to bankrupting the economy. So, the right uh, always, I think, the right way to be thinking about government debt is through the lens of prices and not quantities. And so, as long as uh, we have such demand for government debt as we see out there, you know, r- real yields remain as l- ridiculously low as they are, we're not facing uh, a situation where government is too high. I think um, there's a uh, a very nice uh, paper out by um, economists Guido Lorenzoni, Veronica Garrieri, Ludwig Straub, and Yvonne mm-hmm. Bury. They make it clear that the way to think about this is we've got multiple sectors in the economy. Yep. And by stimulating demand, what we can stimulate the demand for the goods and services that people can go out and buy.
1: Nariana Lakota, thank you. Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. A little bit of news to bring you. Boeing says that it is going to lay off 19,000 people. That's almost 10% of its workforce. Wow. Uh, well, between 8 and 9% right now. But yeah, it's a wow number, Paul. 19,000 jobs is what it's expecting. It had ha- given a range of around 16,000. But I guess, you know, it's uh, what are you going to do if your planes aren't being bought? And if they can't even get up in the air in this environment, you can't exactly keep paying people, I suppose.
0: Yeah, that's what we heard from Brooke Sutherland and even Danielle DiMartino Booth talking about that. I and mean, now the job losses are starting to hit uh, white collar workers and uh, they have a disproportionate share of consumer spend. And so that kind of dovetails into the you know a conservative economic outlook, another data point for uh, the Fed.
1: Yeah. And it really speaks to structural unemployment because if Boeing is eliminating 19,000 jobs this year, how many of those jobs that had been created in the economy will ever come back? All right, let's move to big tech. Maybe there's hope in big tech, but today at least we're moving to big tech because we're going to talk about the congressional hearing that's beginning in about 10 minutes. We'll have four of the big CEOs, including Jeff Bezos, who's never testified in front of Congress before, and of course, Tim Cook of Apple, Alphabet's Sundar Pichai, and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook appearing before com- the committee. Let's bring in Jen Reed to talk to us about what we might expect out of today. She's Senior Litigation Analyst at Bloomberg Intel. Jen, from what angle can we expect the most, uh, you know, attacks on these CEOs? You know,
3: I think it'll be different for each CEO because the issues that each company has, at least in the antitrust world, are really different and their businesses are quite different. Um, so getting into the nitty gritty, it'll be different. But Vani, I think Overall, there's a lot of concern about data and the amount of data that are in the hands of these companies and what they do with that data. Um, and how that data allows them to maintain their position and maybe keep rivals down. And so that could be one overall, you know, overriding theme or, or something that they really grill these companies on. And I also think it's going to be a little bit different depending on who's doing the questioning. You know, I think the Democrats are a little bit more focused here on antitrust and market power and harm to consumers, whereas I think some of the Republicans at least are a little bit more focused on whether or not these companies are biased and whether they're censoring conservative content which isn't an antitrust issue, but I think will come up.
0: So, Jen, I mean, you're right. These are different companies, uh, different profiles, but they're all huge in terms of market capitalization, in terms of front of mind for consumers, for investors, and now for potentially regulators. Do you have a sense of which companies might be more or less at risk here from just overall regulatory oversight?
3: Absolutely. I think by far it's Google and Facebook. Um, whether it be regulatory oversight, whether it be uh, some sort of a challenge from the FTC or DOJ, um, you know, Google we've already seen has been fined in Europe several times for anti-competitive behavior, and, and it could amount to anti-competitive behavior here as well, the same conduct. Um, we do understand that Bill Barr and the DOJ is likely to bring some sort of action against Google this year. So I, I think the risk is highest for Google. And then on Facebook, um, you know, it just seems, at least from the out, an outside observer, that they really have had a strategy of going out over the years and acquiring nascent competitors. And I think there's a, there is a lot of scrutiny on that kind of conduct. And what would have come uh, happened with WhatsApp and with Instagram had Facebook not acquired these companies? Um, and, and so I think that Facebook is also at risk. I, I think Amazon would be next and then Apple last. I don't see Apple having a lot of risk here.
1: No. I mean, Facebook, let's deal with that for a moment. How much will Zuckerberg be questioned about, you know, fact-checking political ads and how they refuse to do it and that it's not really because of free speech, it's more a business decision? And will he emerge unscathed as he and all of the other tech CEOs nearly always do?
3: You know, Vani, I absolutely think he will be questioned on that. Again, even though this is meant to be an antitrust hearing and that isn't an antitrust issue, I, I think it will be probably a big part of his uh, his answers to, in questions and his answers in um, this hearing. With respect to coming out unscathed, um, you know, they generally do, and I think they will in this instance as well, because, one, I just don't know how effective um, it can be when it's set up the way it is with five minutes of questioning of each of these CEOs. Uh, usually these hearings in the past have tended to be more partisan speech-making um, and, and sort of grandstanding than they have been productive or casting any of these companies in a bad light. Um, so I don't, I don't see any of them coming out of this hearing damaged.
0: Is there any realistic... Threat for any of these companies from a, a breakup standpoint. That just, it, to me, it, they just seem so big and so entrenched in the economy and in people's lives. It, it just seems difficult, but I still hear people calling for it.
3: You know, Paul. It. I think the biggest risk to them is actually legislation, and I say that because to try to achieve the breakup of one of these companies in court, which is what the FTC or the DOJ would have to do if that's what they're seeking, is extremely hard. I mean, it might even be hard just to hold these companies liable for illegal monopolization because the way our antitrust laws have developed, the precedents that the judges would have to follow make it actually very difficult for a plaintiff to prove, that, prove their case in this area. So, not only do they have to prove their case But to get that kind of a remedy, which would absolutely be considered the most drastic remedy that could be imposed by a judge, I think would be incredibly difficult. You know, we saw that it failed years ago with Microsoft, and I have to say that in that case, Microsoft was a blatant and egregious violator of the antitrust laws. You know, they they were engaging in anti-competitive conduct that was clearly anti-competitive with very little legitimate pro-competitive business justification for what they're doing. I don't think that'll be the case for these companies. So even though it's possible that an effort will be launched by the DOJ or FTC to try to seek a breakup or a divestiture, I, I don't see it as having any likelihood of success in court.
0: Interesting. Jen Rhee, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your thoughts. You have that unique uh, and experienced uh, viewpoint of antitrust law, and it's certainly going to be front and center today uh, as the tech uh, titans appear before Congress. Jennifer Ree, she's a senior uh, antitrust litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and a real ace up our sleeve when it comes to these a types of You think there's a backstage
1: in, in Congress, Paul? Is there I, a backstage? Yeah, like are they all in the corridors right now to try to wipe the the sweat off their... Well, I think they're all going to be virtual
0: today, right? I think there'll be virtual appearances by... Oh, good point. So, you know, it'll be interesting. So that's actually a break, I would say. But anyway, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Apple's Tim Cook... Alphabet Sundar Pichai and Facebook Mark Zuckerberg. They are testifying before the House Subcommittee on Antitrust, Commercial, and Administrative Law. uh, That is uh, at 12 noon. Uh, Bloomberg Radio will bring that to you live. So it will be very interesting for the technology sector here. So we'll have to see how they play out. Uh, So that will be very interesting. So sure. we'll have to see, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, the, the stocks have done great. I mean, the stocks aren't worried about Avani, so they keep powering along. They're leading this economy, uh, and that is kind of leading the stock market, certainly so. But it'll be very interesting to see how they uh, perform in front of Congress. We'll bring that to you.
1: Time to talk bonds now, fixed income more broadly. So the 10-year hasn't really moved from its range. It's at about 58 basis points as we await the Fed, but really the 10-year just doing nothing. But if you look at measures of credit risk, they're easing today on prospects for a Fed reiterating that it's going to be dovish for a long time. Let's bring in someone who knows all about these things. Stephen Kane is Group Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at TCW Fixed Income, $225 billion in firm-wide assets under management. And Stephen joins us now. Stephen, why should credit risk be easing when we're really not going to hear anything new from the Federal Reserve today?
4: I think what you're seeing is really just an ongoing um, flood of liquidity, you know, in the marketplace. So it's nothing new today. It's not really built upon anything that the credit markets are expecting from the Fed, but really an ongoing comfort, if you will, that the Fed's going to be accommodative. You're going to get fiscal, um, some sort of fiscal package, Um, and that you'll get ongoing liquidity coming into the uh, marketplace. So,
0: Steve, I know you folks at TCW, generally a very conservative view here. Uh, There was initially during this pandemic talk about a V-shaped recovery. That does not seem to be the case.
4: What are your thoughts? Well, um, I mean, I think there was hope going back a couple months that, um, you know, the virus could be dealt with through, you know, social distancing and other, you know, preventative measures. And companies could, you know, the economy could begin to reopen and you could get uh, companies rehiring again. Obviously, that's not been the case. Um, we think that this is going to be a very challenging recovery. And it's not simply that the virus is, is uh, appears to be with us um, and, and a threat for some period of time. It's really that um, the disruption that, that the closing down the economy has caused, meaning that you've had... A number of industries um, suffer significant um, impacts, travel, uh, hospitality, most service businesses, restaurants, et cetera. And that um, in turn leads to uh, job loss and bankruptcies and, and things that are going to lead, we think, to a fairly deep recession and fairly elevated levels of unemployment for a prolonged period of time. So even when we get through this virus, even if we're able to um, you know, have a vaccine in relatively short order, the after effects of the recession and the impact on service industries is going to be rather uh, permanent, um, And we think that's going to be a a fundamental headwind for the economy.
1: So why worry about adding to the deficit and the debt ultimately? Should we be worried about that? Will it hurt the U.S. bond markets, the U.S. credit rating, you know, the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency? Or is it more important to fix the economy right now?
4: Well, I think um, certainly policymakers, I think, are doing what they have to do, meaning um, I think... Supporting the economy through um, through stimulus is what 's necessary to keep this recession from becoming even deeper or even you know potentially a depression so you know you have to solve the problem today before it becomes too big to to solve uh, down the road, and so they 're doing what they have to now the long term implications um, are unknown at this point, but certainly. Um, I think you're seeing weakness in the dollar is partly reflecting the fact that um, the U.S. is running large deficits and printing huge sums of money, it has, you know, very sizable monetary growth, and, um, and and that's certainly weighing on the dollar. I think longer term, it's possible you could see inflation. You've seen some modest uh, drift up in inflation expectations. And I think certainly if the government continues to support the demand side side of the economy with the supply side of the economy being impaired, um, you know, you could see inflation. Um, in terms of the U.S. credit rating, I think that's an issue uh, far down the road in terms of whether, you know, the markets, uh, the U.S. dollar loses its reserve currency status and you begin to see, you know, default risk being priced into the U.S. market. I think that's that's far down the road. Steve, given your relatively cautious outlook, where
0: do you see opportunities or value in the fixed income markets right here?
4: Well, it's getting more and more challenging. As as we mentioned in the past, uh, the the markets were a lot more interesting a few months ago when we were really adding risk uh, aggressively. But now that you've kind of retraced um, spreads, you've got investment grade spreads into into the mid 120s and high yield uh, back to five hundred off after being you know well north of a thousand. We're seeing less and less value in credit, and we we've, we've been trimming. Now, having said that. Um, there's still some opportunities out there and still some areas of value beginning with the agency mortgage um, sector, which is obviously being directly supported by the Fed through 40 billion of purchases monthly and that's not only keeping valuation steady and stable but providing attractive carry and return particularly in the in the forward market in the uh, uh, agency mortgage TBA market. Um, there's areas of the uh, investment grade corporate market that look interesting, money center banks, uh, consumer non-cyclicals, food and beverage um, spreads are still reasonably attractive there, and you know these are businesses generally speaking with strong balance sheets and uh, you know visibility uh, through a very difficult uh, economic environment so. Um, in terms of high yield, you have to be very careful right. um, in terms of treading in that area, and we are definitely being, you know, cautious and trimming exposure as um, as valuations uh, go higher. Steve Kane, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your
0: comments. Steve Kane, Group Managing Director and Portfolio Manager for TCW Fixed Income. They've got two hundred twenty-five billion. In firm-wide assets under management. So they know their way around the fixed income markets here. Again, a cautious view out of TCW, and that's been pretty consistent. And I think, you know, you think about that V-shaped recovery, I don't hear people talking about that much uh, anymore as this pandemic hangs on and we see resurgence in certain key markets in the U.S. Uh, and abroad. Busy, busy earnings day. We had some industrial companies today. Boeing, reporting earnings. GE also reporting earnings. Both of those stocks are off uh, in trading today, suggesting that investors were a little disappointed. Let's break down the numbers from those two giants. We can do that with Brooke Sutherland. She's deals and industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Joins us on the phone from the center of this country, Kansas. Uh, Brooke, thanks so much for joining us here. What are your takeaways from some of these bellwether industrial names?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think for both of them, the key focus was on cash flow, uh, and the numbers did come in, you know, a bit better than what analysts had been expecting, but you're still looking at, at a pretty bleak situation here with GE burning, you know, more than $2 billion, Boeing burning more than $5 billion. Um, it, it, it's rough out there in the aerospace sector, and I think, you know, what you're hearing from these companies is what we've heard from the other aviation companies that are have so far. There is not, you know, a turnaround that's just around the bend. I mean, you know, the GE CEO, Larry Cole, pointed to some positive signs, mostly, um, you know, in China around a pickup in travel there. But of course, that is all domestic. You're not seeing the international flights come back. Um, and in the U.S., where we have been seeing early signs of a recovery, that's now taking a step back on this resurgence in coronavirus cases. Um, and so, you know, I think what investors are sort of possibly rightly concluding here is that this is still a very tough slog and if you were hoping for glimmers of hope you're not really going to find it um, in the announcements from Boeing and GE today.
1: Who at Boeing knew that 737 MAX problems were going to be outdone by other problems in (laughs) 2020? What is the story with the 737 MAX? I mean can it somehow save Boeing in the end?
5: I I would be very skeptical (laughs) of that um, notion. So you know at this point Signals from regulators look like this may be allowed back in the sky um, in sort of the early fourth quarter. But, of course, the issue now for Boeing is not whether regulators approve it. It's whether anybody wants the plane uh, once they're able to take deliveries of it again. So Southwest is the biggest operator of the MAX. And CEO Gary Kelly was very clear last week that he is not interested in taking any MAX jets, any new MAX jets, I should say, this year. They already have about 34 that are parked. That's going to be about all they can handle to bring back, you know, at a time when obviously airlines are looking to take planes out of circulation to deal with the drop off in demand. Um, So, you know, there's some skepticism among analysts that Boeing is not going far enough in dialing back production for the 737 MAX. It did take that down again today, saying it expects to get to 31 a month um, by early 2022 which is pushed back from an earlier time frame of 2021, but that may not be going far enough because they've still got about 450 planes that are parked that they haven't been able to deliver. And, you know, the question is, who's going to take them and on what time frame?
0: 400 planes that are just parked, that's ex- extraordinary. And it just kind of goes... Wow. And it just goes to the, I guess, as you've been talking about, Brooke, the lack of demand from the airline customers. For, for GE, is this a story of just cutting costs, cutting costs, cutting costs until things turn around. I don't see any other kind of growth driver there. I know people focus on the power business, but I can't imagine the demand there is very good either.
5: It's not, no. I mean, and this has really been a step back to the power division, which was showing, you know, some stability and sort of a, a you know, it's not a process, you know, maybe being less of a drag for GE, and that, of course, has been set back. Uh you know, they are still optimistic about a turnaround in power, but the, the timeline has just been delayed. They are being very aggressive about cost cuts. Um, I did speak with Larry Colt uh, just a little okay. bit ago and asked him, you know, if they would follow down going and increasing their job cuts. He said it's premature to think about anything like that. At this time in aviation, they are cutting about 25% of the headcount there. So that is a pretty aggressive cost move on their front. You know, I will say that. In terms of a recovery, GE will probably see that before Boeing, just because of the nature of their business. So GE benefits by planes coming back into service um, and needing maintenance work, needing repairs, spare parts, that kind of thing. So you will see that come back faster than you'll see demand for new planes. But you know, for both of these companies, you're looking at a pretty protracted timeline.
1: Very briefly, Brooke, any comments on China from either of them?
5: I, uh, you know, in terms of Flight travel, uh, They are seeing, you know, a little bit of a recovery there just immensely, but you're not really seeing that international demand as, of course, many travel bans remain in place. Um, there wasn't really any discussion at this point on tariffs. Um, you know, I think that has sort of moved out of the minds of CEOs at this point as we're dealing with, um, you know, these sort of catastrophic declines in, in demand for air travel. So I don't know that that's necessarily quite as top of mind as it was in 2019, but certainly an issue Um, in the background
1: there. Brooke Sutherland, always an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to the industrials. She covers them for Bloomberg Opinion and for Bloomberg more generally. We'll be awaiting her columns on both GE and Boeing, among others, this earnings season. So, Brooke, thank you. And, Paul, it is interesting that, you know, orders down 38%. For GE, but the stock actually reacts positively because that somehow, you know, wasn't as bad as anticipated. I mean, it is down four percent, but it hasn't completely tanked. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn.
0: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg
3: Radio.